Our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. If you want to turn there in your Bibles. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Uh, Father, uh, we ask that the Spirit would open our eyes to the meaning of this word that uh, the Spirit gives us through Peter. Uh, Father, that we would uh, not only understand it, but that you would uh, convict us uh, of sin, that we might repent and be faithful and trust in Christ uh, for grace. And Father, we pray that you would give us a supernatural, spirit-fulfilled uh, obedience uh, to your word. Uh, Lord, anyone who has yet to discover the predicament they're in as a sinner and has yet to turn to Christ, Father, I pray that you would let the weight of that sink in this morning, that they might lean in to the hope uh, that there is in Christ. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of years ago, uh, Laura and I had the privilege of going on a trip through uh, Kentucky and Indi- Indianapolis and visit different biblical counselors uh, counseling organizations and uh, kind of see how other churches um, have used counseling ministries. And one of uh, the gentlemen that I got, that we got to meet was a guy named Dr. Jim Fain. I didn't know who Jim was. Someone gave us his name and he ran a uh, biblical counseling uh, ministry in Indianapolis. And I remember the four or five hours we got to sit with him was really challenging to me as a counselor. And we were in God's Word for four hours, and he was nice enough to uh, just give all of himself to us in uh, helping us understand uh, their philosophy of ministry. 
And one of the things he said to me that I'll never forget, that I've just believed with all my heart, is he said, Sam, you must assume that almost everyone who comes for counseling is probably in some way or another struggling to believe the goodness of God. He said, because if they're coming to you for counseling, they're suffering in some way or another. Whether it's a struggling marriage, whether it's with an addiction to pornography, an addiction to alcohol, whether it's uh, anxiety and worry, uh, whatever someone comes with, you have to know that the fundamental battle that you need to help them through, if you're going to be a good counselor, is to help them believe the goodness of God in the midst of their circumstances without making light of their suffering or their circumstances. Because what we do is we look at the suffering in our lives and begin to say, whether we say it out loud or not, where's God in this? If God were good, would I really be going through this trial or this suffering? Would my marriage really be struggling as it is if you were good? And so the fundamental spiritual battle, a suffering person must get through is believing that God is good. Basically, entrusting your soul to that God. Because if you do not think God is good, you will not go to him in the midst of that trial. You'll go somewhere else, somewhere that seems more clear and more sure. But Paul tells us, in Galatians 2.20, he said, the life I now live in the flesh, that's while he's alive, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul gave us the key to his life there. You want to know how I live in the flesh in the midst of all this suffering and persecution? I know two things. Christ loves me and he gave himself for me. Therefore, Christ is good even when Paul is on his knees with his head on the chopping block, which history tells us his head was cut off for the name of Christ. With his knees on the ground, head on the chopping block, guillotine above his head. How could anyone believe the goodness of God? But yet, Paul knew Christianity. He knew his call. He knew that suffering comes first. Glory comes later. 
He knows that his call to ministry was go tell Paul how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And so when we come to the scripture, we don't come to a fluffy scripture. We don't come to a fluffy God. We don't come to a book that gives us good therapies to, to kind of flatter us and stroke our egos and, and help us throw pity parties. You won't get that in the scripture, which is why often biblical counseling is accused of from other counseling uh, types of counseling out there as being harsh. Now, no biblical counselor ought to ever be harsh, yet we're looking at a text that is speaking to the most suffering Christians on the face of the earth. And what the Bible serves up to those Christians is not what you would call a uh, soothing therapy, but rather a strong faith, an enduring, steadfast faith. So we'll see today that there's really two options when it comes to suffering. One option is to doubt God's goodness and find another way through it. And the second option is to entrust your soul to a God that is good, even if your circumstances are not. To live by faith. Those are really the two options. And if we're honest as Christians, this is a battle. This isn't something that comes easy for us. And so we have nine points this morning. That's why... Uh, we made you those little cards. Because in order to get people to remember the points, you have to have some slick uh, rhetorical device so that you remember, and I couldn't come up with one, but what I could do is give you a little card about the size of your credit card to put in your wallet to help remind you of what God has called you to, to suffer for the name of Christ, one, and two, how to remain steadfast in the midst of it. So let's look at our text. Beloved, and that's point one, when you suffer, remember you are loved. Don't miss the first word. Don't say God is harsh to those who are suffering because the Holy Spirit's first word through Peter to suffering Christians is remember you are loved. Beloved by who? By Peter, yes, but by Christ ultimately. If you're a Christian, you are loved by fellow Christians and you are loved by Christ. Jesus told his disciples right before he was going to die on the cross and then he knew his disciples were going to suffer terrible lives, lives in this world. 
give up their life for Christ. John got to live a long life, but he maybe had the toughest of all. He lived to be an old man in exile, uh, being rejected by the world. But yet Christ said that he was going to prepare a place for them. And he's going to prepare a place for you. And he told them, I want to tell you this if it wasn't so. And if I prepare a place for you, will I not come and take you to be with me where I am? Now this struck me. One of the commentators said this. When your neck is on the chopping block for the name of Christ, if it ever is, or when you're on your deathbed, don't think that God is going to send your guardian angels to get you, to bring you safely home. That job is reserved for Christ, who will never leave you or forsake you. No angel gets a saint and brings them to where Christ is. Christ says, I will not I come and take you. We must never forget that Christ loves us, that he's ever interceding for us at the right hand of God. Yes, as our lawyer, but Yes, as our Savior that's praying for us, moment by moment by moment, we are beloved. That's one of our titles. I am loved. John in the book, or in his gospel, describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how, who am I? He loved me. And that's how Peter addresses those who are in this fiery trial. And then secondly, when you suffer, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now here's what Charles Spurgeon says to give us a little bit of context as to who's receiving this letter. In Peter's day, the Christians were called not only to what might be what he might metaphorically term a fiery trial, but they had literally had to suffer thus for the sake of Christ. Nero had multitudes of Christians brought to his gardens and tied to stakes that he might light up his midnight parties by burning, uh, by the burning of these godly men and women smeared with pitch. They had to be, bear even that fiery trial for the name of Christ. Many periods of martyrdom have passed since then in which the saints of God have willingly died rather than deny their Lord. We have fallen upon a comparatively silken times. A jest, a slander, a calamitous observation, these are the only weapons with which our enemies can smite the most of us. 
And so Spurgeon is saying, you know, we read this as like a metaphor, but to some of the Christians that received this, their son was rolled in pitch and in oil and lit on fire as a torch to light Nero's parties. That's who Peter is writing to. Though suffering even to that degree. Which is amazing to think about because he says, don't be surprised. What, Peter? Do you know what happened to my son or my daughter? Don't be surprised. Where did Peter learn to give this sort of exhortation? But yet Christ told him that he would die this sort of death. That he would die a sort of torturous death that he would not want to to die. The Gospel of John reveals that Christ revealed that to Peter. And that Christ promised that this world would reject the Christians. In fact, in John 16.33, Jesus said to the disciples, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. So Jesus is juxtaposed. He, 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 he showed them their peace in him. But then he says, in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So Jesus says, the things I'm telling you is so that you can have peace in me because you're not going to have it in the world. What you're going to have from the world is tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So that if you're found in Christ, if your hope is anchored in Christ, you will be okay even when this world disposes of you because he's overcome this world. Remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12? He said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. It's the promise Don't be surprised at the fiery trial. You've never been promised to escape that. In fact, you've been promised tribulation. And you've been promised persecution. And in 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, Paul calls Timothy, here's what he says. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And the one who enlisted him is Jesus himself. And so we have two options. We, have, we can be a good soldier and carry the name of Christ to a world that will either get saved in that name or persecute in that name and reject in that name. Or 
You can get involved in per, our civilian pursuits. You can kind of be a Christian, but I'm not really going to bear the name of Christ out there. And so I'm going to have my beliefs. I'm going to kind of live kind of the way I want because Jesus didn't really figure it out, did he? He got killed on a cross. We're tempted to think that we're going to find the middle road, the road where the world is okay with us, the world where I really get to do what I want to do, but not submit to Christ. And yet, Paul tells young Timothy, he says, be a good soldier. Remember who enlisted you. Please him. And so we ought not be surprised. And then look at what it says. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. These trials are actually ordained by God, even the persecutions, to test and refine us. Test us for what? To see if we're Christians. Test us to see if we're real. What other test is better than having to suffer for the name of Christ to find out if your faith is authentic or inauthentic? And the purpose of your salvation is to be conformed into the image of Christ. And unless when you got saved, you were incredibly sanctified, then wouldn't we expect the refining furnace of suffering as God conforms us into the image of Christ through testing and through trials. And so we ought not be surprised when suffering comes upon us. Proverbs 27, 21 says, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and a man is tested by his praise. And does praise come out of our mouth in the midst of suffering? Psalm 66, 8. Blessed are God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard who has kept our soul among the living and has let not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You've tried us as silver is tried. You've brought us into the net. You've laid a crushing burden on our backs. You've let men ride over our heads. We went through the fire and through the water, yet you've brought us out to a place of abundance. So our God is a refining God. He's not a fluffy God. He's a holy God. And when He saves you for His glory, He will refine. And we must not be surprised and we must not doubt His goodness as He conforms us into the image of Christ. It is true God would not be good if goodness was defined by what we what proves goodness is that we have an easy life. 
if that were the standard, that's how the world thinks. Well, these Christians can't truly believe in the real God. Those who trust him get put in the Colosseum and die. (laughs) Why would we want to trust a God like that? We're all after a God that makes everything good for us. The standard of God's goodness is not whether or not you're suffering in the present. It's what God has done for you in the past, in Christ, and what's guaranteed and promised you in the future. Third, when you suffer, rejoice. So don't be surprised. That's tough. Rejoice. What? Yet we kind of know if we've read the New Testament, God calls Christians to rejoice in their suffering. Not only does he say, don't get bitter, don't get angry with God, but he says rejoice in the midst of these fiery trials. In the, in the context is the context Peter's writing to Christians when Nero is reigning in Rome. Paul said this sort of thing, Romans 5.3. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. Rejoice in your suffering because character is going to be built. Hope is going to be built. And if you have hope, you're going to see the love of Christ. And that love of Christ is going to be poured into your hearts. And you won't be put to shame if you remember the love of Christ. So Paul said the same thing. James says the same thing. James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Tom Schreiner says this, God uses the trials of life to strengthen the character of believers and to make them fit for his presence. If you want to find a mature believer, you'll find a suffering believer. If you want to find an immature believer, you're going to find a believer that's yet to suffer much for the name of Christ. Schreiner also says, Peter exhorted readers to rejoice in their present sufferings so that they'll be able to rejoice and exult forever when Christ returns. By implication, those who do not rejoice in sufferings do not truly belong to Jesus Christ. If they groan about sufferings now, they'll presumably be disappointed when Christ comes. If you look at verse 13, look at what it says. Rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The paradigm is this. If you can't rejoice now in your sufferings, you're not going to rejoice when Christ comes because that's what 
saving faith does. It has a supernatural character to it. It trusts the goodness of God even in the midst of suffering. Now, no one does that perfectly. We're all in the fight of faith. But if your only experience of suffering is bitterness and anger towards God and doubting His goodness, and there's been no ability to rejoice in Christ, what Peter is saying, what makes you think you'll rejoice when Christ returns? Because the reason we rejoice now, one of the reasons is, is we see the testing of our faith being standing and being steadfast and therefore it's a guarantee that there's even going to be greater rejoicing when Christ comes. That's the principle that he's teaching in verse 13. And notice he says, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. In so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. Another way to translate that is to the degree that you share in Christ's sufferings. So there's this principle in the scripture that the more you suffer for the name of Christ, the more reward or the more glory there will be there for you when Christ returns and for all eternity. It's another reason to rejoice. This is what Paul taught also in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He says, So we do not lose heart, though our outward self is wasting away, our inward self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Which means none of your suffering is meaningless. To the degree that you suffer for the name of Christ will also match up with the degree of your faithfulness for Christ. Because the more you look like Christ, the more you'll share in the sufferings of Christ. Spurgeon says it's the ripest fruit on the tree that gets pecked the most by the birds. And so those who are the most like Christ in their profession of Him and in their way they live their life, because both brings persecution. No one wants a godly life in front of them when you're living a sinful life. The godly life will be persecuted in this world. And nobody wants to hear that they're a sinner in need of repentance unless the Holy Spirit opens their heart and saves them. So, the more faithful we are to Christ, the more suffering we will receive. Matthew 5.10, Jesus taught in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's proof that they're Christians. Christians. 
that they're saved. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Here it is again. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he's saying, insofar as they're lying about you, rejoice. Your reward's going to be greater. And then he says in verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And this is point four in your notes. When you suffer, rejoice, for you are blessed with Christ-like glory. Notice in verse 14, it says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. This is a phrase that's everywhere in the New Testament. To be insulted for the name of Christ means you're speaking his name by speaking the gospel. Or you're living your life under the lordship of Christ, therefore you look so different in the world that you're being persecuted for the name of Christ in which you cry out as Lord and submit to. And so the type of suffering that Peter's talking about is suffering for the name of Christ. And here's why I debated to make you those little cards. I thought, are these really relevant? Are these really relevant? How often are we suffering for the name of Christ, which means we're faithful to speak up the gospel at work and with our friends in love, not being a jerk. Are we faithful or are we ashamed of Christ? Because if we're ashamed of Christ, then you won't need the card because there won't be no suffering for the name of Christ. But are you willing to tell your closest friend who's in rebellion to Christ? Are you, will, are you willing to talk to them? Remind them of the gospel. Remind them what Christ has called them to, even if you lose that friend. And so that little card in your wallet is not only a how-to Suffer faithfully for the name of Christ, but it's a question to ask every time you see it. How have I been suffering for bearing the name of Christ? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory rests upon you. This is language that Isaiah prophesied of Christ that would happen to Christ and through Christ happens to us. In Isaiah 11, here's what the prophet Isaiah 11, our Isaiah says. He says, 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That's Christ. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his shall delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by his own wisdom. So the idea here is there's going to be one who's coming who the Spirit of God rests upon and that one fears God, doesn't fear man. Is shining forth the glory of God. That was Christ. And now as Christians, as Christians, those in Christ, what does Peter say in this text? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Rests upon you. That same image, that same glory, that same shining rests upon you, which ought to be good news because this is what you're created for, to be an image bearer of God. And in Christ, you can shine. Even if you'll shine the brightest in this world through suffering faithfully and rejoicing in your suffering. Yes, we're going to suffer, but the Spirit of God will be with us the whole time and we will shine forth that same Spirit. The very thing we're created for. To be those who bear the name of Christ. In Philippians 1.28, Paul says this, And do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted for you, that for the sake of Christ, that you not only believe in Him, but that you suffer for His sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and still have today. It's incredible. He says, don't be bummed out by your opponents. That's a sign that you're saved. And then he says, it's been granted to you to have the privilege to believe, which means if you've trusted in Christ, that's only because of supernatural grace of the Holy Spirit bringing a spiritually dead person alive. You can't bring that faith about. It's been granted for you not only to believe. Who thinks faith is a gift? It's an incredible gift. Well, right on the same shelf of faith, it's also been granted for you to suffer for His sake, for His name. It's on the same shelf. And so Paul says, bear with me in the same conflict. What, what incredible honor we have to be like Christ in this world. In Colossians 1.24, he says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, that is the church. 
So Paul says, I'm suffering in my body, filling up what was lacking in the suffering of Christ. There's nothing lacking in his atoning sacrifice. But Christ ascended into heaven, and now there's a visible body that is suffering for the sake of the body that they can see, that they can know, they can see Paul. And in that sense, he's filling up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. Our suffering's never in vain. It's producing an eternal weight of glory. God's using it for the good of others. It's the very purpose you're created for. The Spirit of God is with you. It's the promise that when Christ returns, your faith is going to hold steadfast. These are all incredible gifts given to us, even in the midst of God-ordained suffering. D.A. Carson says this, Christ's glory not only shines when he is vindicated at his resurrection and ascends to the right hand of the Father, and he re when he returns uh, to reveal his matchless glory at the end of the age, but the spirit of glory in God also rests on us as we follow Jesus' pattern from the cross to the crown, from suffering to vindication, from persecution to glory, God's glory, His essential nature, His utter praiseworthiness is displayed in the cross before it is displayed in the second advent. And it is similarly for us. The spirit of glory and of God rests on us as we are insulted and persecuted on the way to the celestial city. In the case of Jesus, God's glory is displayed in Jesus' face as it shines with the brightness of the noonday sun such that the angels cover their faces with their wings and cannot gaze upon Him. But it was earlier displayed in the battered human being on the cross. A man with wounds and sweat and pain suffering torture and ag agony as he bears the guilt of guilt of us, his image bearers, with his Father himself turning aside. That too is where his glory is revealed. That is why the early Christians spoke of Christ reigning from the cross. An idiotic notion to the Romans, but elementary Christianity to his followers, close quote. And so God has called us in this time now to bear his name. And I am telling you, as we look around, the Christian church, Sovereign Grace Church, must strengthen itself. Our faith must, must be strengthened. Our faithfulness in the midst of a world that is becoming ever more rejecting of Christ and His name and the values that Christ gives us means that 
We cannot go to this book looking for a few encouraging notes to get us through the day. We must read this Bible for what it really says. We must know the God of this Bible. We must be able to remember and not be surprised at the rejection. We must not feel sorry for ourselves when we are rejected. And when those don't think we're great people as we live out our Christian faith. We know the doctrine of sin, right? We ought not be surprised when the world rejects us as Christians. So we're out of time. We're going to look at uh, points five through nine last our next week, uh, beginning in verse five, where it says, uh, "Let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, or as an evildoer, or a meddler." There's ways we can suffer as Christians because we're kind of idiotic, not because we're shining the love of Christ in the character of Christ but maybe because we're shining our own egos. And so we'll pick up with that uh, next week. I, before I pray, though, I do want to make clear what the gospel hope is. Why would anyone sign up for this? Well, the hope, the reason why people would sign up for this is because they would know reality. And reality is is your creator is the only God in the universe, in the world. He created all things. And he's perfect in every way. And he's holy. And he created you and I to be his image bearers. And we've rebelled. We've made ourselves God where he is gone. We've lived for ourselves. We've rejected him. The Bible calls that sin. We're created to glorify him. Paul defines sin as falling short of the glory of God, which means anything you and I do for our own glory rather than for his glory is sin, which means we sin every day, all the time. And because God's good and holy and just, he must punish sin. So sinners have zero hope to get themselves out of their predicament. But God in his love sent Jesus Christ, his only son. And Christ was the only human being to ever live a perfect life on this earth. And the reason why he came and lived that life was so that that life could be offered to you. It's like you're standing in place to go before the judge and you're in your sin and you know he's perfect. And you say to yourself, well, what hope is there for me? If only there could be one that could come and take my place in line, take my name tag, Sam Ellison, go stand before that judge in my place. Well, that's what Jesus did. He lived a perfect life, stepped into my shoes when I trusted in him alone for forgiveness of sin and for perfect righteousness, the two things I lack, I have sinned and I haven't lived a perfect life. 
But when I trust in him, Christ takes my place in line. Sam Ellison goes before the throne of God and God sees Christ's perfect life in my place. So there's two types of people in the world. Those who will face God with Christ or better in Christ. He'll be taking your place or those who are going to go at it on their own and hope that their life is good enough. And I'm telling you, it's not. But Christ has not called you to a life of ease in this world. He's called you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. He's promised you that if they hated me, this world will hate you. But take heart, I've overcome the world. There will be tribulation in this world, but I've overcome the world. So the invitation is to you. Will you have Christ? Will you turn from your sin offering joy and say, no, Christ will offer my joy? Will you repent and trust Christ? Father, I pray that no one here would go another moment in their life risking that their next breath is their last breath and might face you outside of Christ. Lord, we know that we will suffer for a short time, but live forever with you in paradise. And Lord, our hearts break for those who are now rejecting Christ, for eternal wrath stands before them. Give us pity for them. Let it bring about a sort of love and faithfulness and willingness to suffer as we bring the gospel to them for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.